Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Tucker Carlson answers questions about his exit from Fox News for the first time. Find out what he said in the online interview. A reported change in the location where cocaine was found at the White House. Now, the Republican-led Oversight Committee is probing the details. We have updates on the investigation and latest White House response. The Biden administration taking aim at non-Obamacare insurance options. President Biden's announcement and what it could, how it could affect Americans. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in Beijing to meet the Chinese Premier. The Biden administration seeks to frame its relationship with China as competitive rather than adversarial. And as Yellen tries to amend ties, China refuses to participate in a U.S.-led coalition against the fentanyl crisis. The Secretary of State kicked off the first global meeting today. Will the U.S. send cluster bombs to Ukraine to help stop Russia's invasion? It's a question the U.S. has been considering, and now President Biden has made a decision. Popular commentator Tucker Carlson is finally talking about leaving Fox News earlier this year. In an interview with Russell Brand today, Tucker said he didn't expect to be fired from Fox. So I was shocked, but I wasn't really shocked. And I wasn't mad. It's not my company. And when you work for someone else, that person reserves the right and, in fact, has inherently the right to decide whether you work there or not. And um, I don't know why I was fired. I really don't. Uh, I'm not angry about it. Carlson was fired sometime after his show featured new footage from the January 6th Capitol breach. But he said he doesn't know whether the firing has to do with that. In a brief news release issued in late April, Fox News said it had parted ways with Carlson. The network has released virtually no information on that since. But Carlson has launched another show on Twitter, drawing tens of millions of views in its first few episodes. Also in the interview, Carlson said he isn't being paid by Twitter, nor its owner Elon Musk, and that he doesn't want to have a boss again. Fox News has reportedly sent cease and desist letters in an effort to stop his Twitter show, claiming that he breached his contract. And turning now to the cocaine found in the White House. Amid changes in reported locations and the possibility of an inconclusive investigation, the House Oversight Committee is now investigating the details. NTD's Melina Wisecup has more updates for us. The incident of cocaine being found at the White House has garnered a lot of attention and understandably so because this is a situation that's very out of the ordinary and just from the quick response that we've seen from Republicans here in Congress, it suggests that they're not willing to let this drift out of the headlines anytime soon. The GOP-led oversight committee is now probing the details of the incident. The chairman of that committee, James Comer, called it a shameful moment in the White House's history, writing that in a letter to the Secret Service's director requesting for her to come and give a staff level briefing on the issue by July 14th. Another issue in the mix that's really raising questions is the location change. So it was originally believed that the cocaine was found in the White House library. Then that location changed to the West Wing lobby, which has a bit more foot traffic. It's a heavy foot traffic area. Then most recently, it's believed to have been found in the West executive entrance, which is uh, more secured. It, it's also 
where the vice president's vehicle is usually parked to give you an understanding of the security level in that area. And it's also near the Situation Room. Today, the National Security Advisor brushed off questions about whether or not there are national security implications. Take a look. The Situation Room is not in use and has not been in use for months because it is currently under construction. I do not believe at present as things stand here at the podium today that we are facing some national security threat. And unsurprisingly, former President Donald Trump took a stab at the Biden family, writing on Truth Social. Does anyone really believe that the cocaine found is for the use of anyone other than Hunter and Joe Biden? In response to this, one White House staffer had this to say. Are you willing to say that that's not the case, that they don't belong to them? I don't have uh, a response to that because we have to be careful about the Hatch Act. And when pressed further today about whether this drug might have belonged to a Biden family member, the White House press secretary called the reporter's question irresponsible. They were not here. They were at Camp David. They were not here Friday. They were not here Saturday. They were not here Sunday. They were not even here Monday. They came back on Tuesday. So to ask that question is actually incredibly irresponsible. It was initially expected that this investigation would be concluded in the few weeks ahead. However, that timeline has recently shrunk and is expected now to finish by next Monday. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. And staying in D.C., in a move that could impact millions of Americans, President Biden today announced plans to crack down on non-Obamacare insurance options. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. President Biden today announced a new plan to limit short-term health insurance. He calls such plans junk insurance, saying they don't provide as much coverage as does Obamacare. They dig into your medical records, discover you had asthma as a kid, claim you had a heart attack or as a pre-existing condition, and then refuse to pay. That's a scam. It has to end. Millions of Americans are enrolled in short-term health insurance. Such plans are not subject to Obamacare rules that would require how much it should cover or how it should be priced. The Trump administration in 2018 expanded it, saying that it's a more affordable option to Obamacare. The President Biden now says that he wants to roll it back in cutting its maximum time limit. Short-term plans would have to be short-term. That means four months or less, not three years. The Biden administration is billing today's action as part of its Bidenomics agenda to lower costs for Americans. The Republicans fire back. In a statement today, the House Ways and Means Committee says Biden's plan would severely restrict access to affordable coverage options, adding that the Biden administration's, quote, one-size-fits-all approach to health care has only driven up insurance premiums for millions of Americans. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. Another high-ranking U.S. official setting foot in China. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in Beijing meeting with top leaders. What's on the agenda and what's next for U.S.-China relations? NTD's Sam Wang brings us the latest. On Friday, Treasury Secretary Yellen sat down with Chinese Premier Li Qiang, expressing hopes of bolstering ties with the world's second-largest economy. Let's take a listen. And it's my hope that this visit can spur more regular channels of communication between our two countries and in that spirit we look forward to our discussion. She added that complete economic decoupling isn't on Washington's agenda. Instead, the U.S. is looking to maintain rule-based competition with China, not a winner-take-all approach. 
Though talks of reconciliation are still in the air, Yellen said that the U.S. and its ally will continue to hit back at what she called China's unfair economic practices. China's premier released a statement calling on the U.S. to meet China halfway. Relations between Washington and Beijing have soured in recent years. The two nations tussle on a wide range of disputes, such as Russia's war in Ukraine, Taiwan, and China's assertive actions in the Indo-Pacific. The U.S. is also concerned about human rights abuses in China and efforts by Beijing to gather intelligence and steal intellectual property. Last October, the U.S. imposed a series of export controls aimed at blocking China from using Western technology to make microchips. Beijing's Commerce Ministry, on the same token, announced a similar measure just earlier this week, restricting exports of two key materials used in semiconductor manufacturing. Aside from the chip war, Beijing recently raided several foreign consulting firms under its updated counter-espionage law. This sounded the alarm for U.S. businesses and prompted the U.S. to warn Americans that China could arrest foreigners with no explanations for doing things like researching sensitive topics. With all that being said, economic ties between the U.S. and China remain deeply linked. As of last year, the two-way trade hit a staggering record of over $690 billion, and the CCP regime is also among the top two investors in U.S. debt. Yellen is the second high-ranking U.S. official visiting China this year, following Secretary of State Antony Blinken. The Treasury Secretary is slated to talk with the Chinese Vice Premier, her direct counterpart, on Saturday. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wang, NTD News. And earlier today, I spoke with Asian affairs expert and economist Riley Walters about Yellen's latest moves in China. Walters is deputy director and Japan chair at the Hudson Institute and senior fellow at the Global Taiwan Institute. Let's see that now. Riley, thanks for coming on. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in Beijing today confronted the communist regime's treatment of U.S. companies and its new export controls. How do you see the secretary's moves? Well, she's definitely trying to put out a fire, I think, that exists between Washington and Beijing right now. There's a lot of back and forth uh, between China and the rest of the world, particularly in the semiconductor space. Um, it's going to be a, a hard <laughs> effort for her. I think it's going to take more than one trip, perhaps, to settle these relations right now. But, um, you know, I think in their mind, especially within the Treasury Department, they see these efforts as worthwhile. It is the Biden administration's policy that, you know, while we want to compete with China, we also want to be able to find areas, potential areas of cooperation. For sure. Now, Yellen has promised to coordinate with allies to champion U.S. business interests in response to what she has said was China's unfair economic practices. What do you think the U.S. should do on that front as tensions rise with China? Well, thankfully, it's not just the United States that's interested in working together. Uh, we saw an effort come out of the G7 summit uh, just uh, a month or two ago, talking about you know a, a Western allied response against economic coercion, uh, with China, of course, being the 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 main culprit in mind. The Japanese, in particular, are very concerned about China using its economic and trade measures to punish or uh, punitively uh, hurt other countries or companies from those countries. And so uh, I think there's a, you know, a coalition of the willing, if you will, uh, it's not just within Asia, but of course the Europeans as well. The question is, you know, where are the areas that we can actually agree upon? I think those are things that will have to be fleshed out in the future, particularly maybe at the uh, upcoming APEX summit later this year. For sure. Many moving parts here, so we'll have to see how that turns out. But next, human rights activists have warned that Yellen's visit effectively normalizes the ongoing human rights abuses in China. They're recommending relinking trade and investment to human rights issues. What's your take on that? 
Well, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of ways that we can uh, initiate more ways to support our human rights efforts uh, and, of course, make sure that Beijing owns up to a lot of its uh, um, bad habits, if you will. Um, I don't know necessarily if it means stopping these kinds of dialogues because I don't really know what these dialogues are necessarily providing both in a uh, substantial matter toward making relations with Washington better or in a way that is uh, actually helping human rights efforts either. So uh, I think there are definitely things that we can be doing. And the Treasury Department is one of those uh, departments that is in charge of a lot of this. So um, they can be doing a lot more. I don't know if necessarily these talks will support that, though. Right. Great to hear from you. Riley Walters, Deputy Director of the Hudson Institute, Japan Chair and Senior Fellow at the Global Taiwan Institute. Thank you. More global news. The U.S. is asking for help in the drug crisis. The Secretary of State called on a coalition of nations today to help tackle fentanyl. NTD's Arlene Richards has the details. Secretary of State Antony Blinken Friday led the first virtual meeting of a coalition of nations aimed at ending the threat of fentanyl. Nearly 110,000 Americans died last year of a drug overdose. Two-thirds of those deaths involved synthetic opioids. In late 2018, the Trump administration urged China to boost efforts to control fentanyl production. At that time, fentanyl-related drug deaths in the U.S. had spiked from 14.3 percent in 2010 to 60 percent in 2017. China took action by declaring all fentanyl-related drugs as controlled substances, but continued to produce and ship other substances called precursor chemicals to Mexico and Central America, where drug cartels use the chemicals to produce fentanyl for smuggling into the United States. Now Blinken said criminals have started to expand their operations. Having saturated the United States market, transnational criminal enterprises are turning elsewhere to expand their profits. If we don't act together with fierce urgency, more communities around the world will bear, will bear the catastrophic costs that are already affecting so many American cities, so many American towns. In a special media briefing on Thursday, Assistant Secretary of State Todd D. Robinson said 84 countries committed to participating, but China hasn't responded to the invitation. He said the U.S. is counting on other countries to urge China to participate, but China said it's up to the U.S. to create the necessary conditions for the two countries to combat drugs. In a press briefing today, China's foreign ministry spokesperson said, China firmly opposes smears and unilateral sanctions on other countries under the pretext of the fight against drugs. The Chinese regime condemned the U.S. for filing criminal charges last month against Chinese companies and individuals accused of drug trafficking into the U.S. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And we have an important update on U.S. military aid to Ukraine. The Pentagon has decided it will send cluster bombs to the country. This highly controversial weapon has been banned by over 100 countries. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest updates. The U.S. has confirmed that it will send cluster munitions to help Ukraine fend off Russia's invasion. But this is a highly controversial weapon that the U.S. itself stopped using in 2016 because of the danger it poses to civilians. And over 120 countries have banned the use of these weapons through the Convention on Cluster Munitions. 
Cluster bombs are also known as dual-purpose improved conventional munitions, or DPICMs. But what exactly are cluster bombs and why are they so controversial? Their canisters are filled with smaller bomblets and can be dropped from planes, launched from missiles, or fired from artillery. The canister opens in the air, releasing the bomblets, which are dispersed over a large area intended to destroy multiple targets at once. According to an article on the U.S. Army's e-armor website, each canister can carry 88 bomblets, and each bomblet has a lethal range of about 100 square feet. The problem is not all of the bomblets explode after hitting the ground, and the unexploded munitions can be unintentionally detonated by civilians years or even decades later. One thing the Pentagon is focused on is the dud rate, as the Red Cross has reported that 10 to 40 percent of cluster munitions failed to detonate in recent conflicts. Pentagon Press Secretary General Pat Ryder addressed this on Thursday. Um, I will say that we have multiple variants of DPICMs in our stocks, uh, and the ones that we are considering providing would not include older variants uh, with dud rates that are higher than 2.35 percent. And he explained how DPICMs could help Ukraine on the battlefield. What DPICMs bring to a battlefield is anti-armor and anti-personnel capability. So essentially, uh, it can be either loaded with shape charges, which are, are armor penetrating, or they can be loaded with fragmentary uh, munitions, which are anti-personnel. Uh, so clearly a, a capability that would be useful in any type of offensive operations. So how is NATO handling the issue, as the majority of NATO countries have banned cluster munitions? Well, it is for individual allies to make decisions on what type of weapons. Uh, all allies agree that we should deliver weapons, uh, uh, ammunition to Ukraine. NATO as an alliance doesn't have a uh, a position on the convention simply because there are different views uh, among allies on the convention. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said it was a difficult decision to make given the risk to civilians, but ultimately there was a unanimous recommendation from the national security team, and President Biden made the final decision to send the cluster bombs to Ukraine. Jason Perry, NTD News. Coming up, the 2019 El Paso shooter gets his federal sentence. The gunman killed 23 people at a Walmart in what prosecutors call a hate crime. And a new social media platform by Mark Zuckerberg is already facing allegations of censorship. That's just days after his company launched the app. That and more after the break. The gunman who killed 23 people at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas in 2019 was sentenced today to 90 life sentences. He could still face more punishment, including the death penalty. A relative of one of the shooting victims spoke out. It's very sad that it's taken this long and that the court system has allowed this to happen. And um, just basically, it's just sad. It's, it's, a, it's, it's at this point, it's a joke. Um, we should have had justice a long time ago. 24-year-old Patrick Crucius pleaded guilty earlier this year to nearly 50 federal hate crime charges in the 2019 shooting. This makes it one of the U.S. government's largest hate crime cases. 
U.S. District Judge David Guadarrama recommended that Cruzius serve his sentence at a maximum security prison in Colorado. Crucius still faces a separate trial in a Texas court that could result in him getting the death penalty. That trial date has not yet been set. The 23 people who were killed ranged in age from a 15-year-old high school student to several elderly grandparents. And we'll keep you updated on that. Next in Tech News, millions of people have reportedly signed up to Mark Zuckerberg's new app Threads. However, just days into the launch, it seems that the platform is already censoring certain accounts. NTD's Arian Pazdar brings us the latest. Mark Zuckerberg's Meta launched a new app this week, Threads. It's seen as a competitor to Twitter as the two apps are very similar. On Friday, Zuckerberg announced that there have been 70 million signups on Threads as of this morning. However, similar to other apps operated by Meta, such as Instagram and Facebook, Threads is facing allegations of censorship. On Thursday, Donald Trump Jr. took to Twitter, saying Threads users who tried to follow him received this notification, asking, Are you sure you want to follow Donald Trump Jr.? This account has repeatedly posted false information. Andy Stone, a communications manager for Meta, responded, saying, This was an error and shouldn't have happened. It's been fixed. To learn about this and more, I spoke with Chris Alexander. He's a former tech expert with the Department of Defense and now works with the Pioneer Development Group, which focuses on Web3 technology. Are you at all worried that threats might suppress free speech? I'm extremely worried. The fact is this is Facebook who censored the word liberty at the Biden administration's request we're now learning on that 4th of July court ruling. He added that privacy is always a concern, as all companies such as Twitter, Instagram and others have similar goals. To learn everything it can about you, so that advertisers, politicians, government officials can tell you what to buy, how to think, what to, what to vote, how to vote. Elon Musk reportedly sent a letter to Meta threatening to sue the company because it allegedly used former Twitter employees to build the new app. The communications director at Meta responded saying, no one on the Threads engineering team is a former Twitter employee. That's just not a thing. Jeff Bermont is the founder of Tusk, which brands itself as a free speech internet browser. He tells me Musk might not have the grounds to sue. You know, he may feel it's unfair, but it's his competition. And if he does a better job of running Twitter, uh, he'll ultimately win. Musk didn't make clear yet if or when he'd sue. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. And over in France, a possible ban on TikTok. French senators published the results of an investigation into the Chinese video sharing app. They say TikTok should not be described as a business, but rather as an intelligence operation. They're calling on the platform to make significant changes and clarify its links to China. Or else it should be suspended in the country and possibly in Europe. NTD's France correspondent David Vives spoke to some of the senators. A wall of opacity. That's how French senators describe how TikTok executives conducted themselves during an inquiry. For four months, a special Senate commission conducted hearings with France's lobbyists from the Chinese video sharing platform, as well as researchers. Senators said most of the time they were stonewalled by TikTok executives on the firm's ties with the Chinese regime. Senators said at some point hearings became a farce as executives refused to answer most of the questions. We had questions about the business model. We had questions about advertising. 
and very concrete questions about cybersecurity and data storage. And the answers we got were all smiles. They weren't concrete answers to our questions. We reached out and proposed interviewing the director and managers of TikTok France, but these requests always went unheeded. The report pointed out the role of TikTok in the Chinese regime's cognitive warfare against the West. This includes the subversion of its users, as an intense use of TikTok can cut them off from their environment, education, history and culture. Medical experts said the app's algorithm can draw teenagers into an enclosure bubble which sometimes has a strong impact on their well-being. Senators said they are very concerned how TikTok collects and stores data. One senator said TikTok is not a business, but rather an intelligence operation. Senator Maluré supports this point. Startups, on the other hand, operate on a model. You lose money for a few years, then there's the prospect of profits. This profit perspective is much less clear-cut than in other areas of TikTok. There's a second component, which is political, notably through data collection, disinformation, and a certain amount of fake news that doesn't exist at all on other platforms but which is very present on TikTok. So yes, there's an economic, ethical aspect, as well as a political aspect, particularly in relation to the Chinese regime. The Commission said the Chinese platform should be given until January to comply with its recommendations. They include transparency on the company structure and to limit the use for minors to 60 minutes a day. If TikTok doesn't come clean in six months, the Commission said they will ask the government to ban it in France and give further recommendations to the EU Commission. Maluré says he's not optimistic TikTok will comply. We have promises, but we don't have results. So I don't see why there should be any in the coming months. We'll have to get them through injunctions, and that's what we've asked the French government and the European Commission to do in our recommendations. Since we can't get this or that information, this or that action, we are not going to ask for it either, but impose it. A recent survey found while French law forbids under 13-year-olds to use TikTok, over 60% said they actually do use it. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up, is growth in the U.S. economy slowing? Jobs added are below expectations. Are the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes finally having an impact? And debate over the contraceptive pill sparking controversy. We hear from a women's magazine founder about why more debate could afford women more freedom. These stories and more when we return. New jobs report released today. Numbers are below analyst expectations. Is growth in the U.S. economy slowing? Are the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes finally having an impact? For more in-depth analysis, here's NTD Business's Don Ma. And here with me is Julia Pollock, chief economist at Zip Recruiter. So after 13 consecutive beats of expectations, we now get a softer print uh, for the jobs numbers today, but still about 200,000. So pretty solid. What are we seeing with this report? 
This is still a solid report. Uh, unemployment is still very low at 3.6%, and 209,000 jobs added is nothing to sneeze at. But there are clear signs that the labor market is cooling. Let me walk you through just a few of those. So one, this is the lowest print in uh, since December of 2020. Uh, two, the job finding rate for unemployed workers has gone down below its pre-pandemic sort of average. Uh, three, you know, temporary help services employment keeps falling. That is usually a leading economic indicator uh, and something to watch. Um, we also saw a big increase in the number of workers working part-time for economic reasons uh, because their hours were cut or because they couldn't find full-time work. That's another sign of sort of softening demand for labor. And lastly, uh, the unemployment rate for black workers rose to 6%. Now, that's a very noisy series. It could just be statistical noise. Uh, but we do know that when labor market conditions soften, it is typically underrepresented workers who get hit first. Do you think the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes are finally having an impact on the labor market? That is very much the uh, the takeaway that I would I would take from this report. Yes, the labor market uh, is finally starting to feel the effects of higher interest rates. Do you expect uh, this report to be an outlier, or is this going to be a continuous trend going forward? So I think we are now back to a sort of sustainable uh, labor market that's no longer overheating, that's adding jobs, that's sort of a solid, steady pace. Uh, I think that we could see stronger reports than this going forward uh, for a number of reasons. One is that uh, employment overall is still well below its pre-pandemic trend. There would be a lot more people employed in this economy if the pandemic had never taken place. And so there's still a lot of catch-up hiring that might take place in the coming months, uh, especially in the government and in childcare services and in industries that were hardest hit. Another reason is we've just had an almost 15% year-to-date return in the stock market uh, and a rebound in consumer confidence, which could bode well for act activity going forward. All right, thank you so much today, Julia. Always great speaking with you. Good speaking to you too. Next, zombie mortgages. You thought they were dead, but that isn't going to stop them from coming after you. Many homeowners are now dealing with these zombies, facing large bills and foreclosure. NTD's Sean Marshall has more. Second mortgages that homeowners thought were dead are returning. They're rising from the grave and torturing these homeowners with large bills and foreclosure threats. These mortgages were taken out before the 2008 recession. But during the recession, when times were tough, lenders didn't bother collecting them. Nonetheless, that mortgage still existed and the obligation to pay still existed. The lender wrote that off. And from the consumer standpoint, writing it off seemed to mean to them, I don't have to pay it anymore. Attorney and real estate broker Bruce Aileon says that back then, the lenders sold these mortgages to investors at extremely low prices. And now, because real estate values have gone up, these zombie mortgages suddenly have value again. So these investors want to collect. Out of the blue, the lender sends a demand letter requesting payment of not just the original principal balance, which was 10, 20% of their purchase price, but interest over the past 13, 14 years, plus late fees and penalties. 
Often this is two or three times what the original loan was. Not all zombie mortgages were created before 2008. Attorney Jean Cirillo had clients who received. A letter from a collection agent about a second mortgage that they had taken out on their house supposedly nine, ten years ago. It was 2013. It turned out, and this is something that homeowners have to be aware of, somebody had stolen their identity. The criminal who stole their identity used it to get a home equity loan. So what should you do if you might have a zombie mortgage or if you're currently dealing with one? First of all, go to a property law attorney. Every person's situation is different and a property law attorney will have the ability to work things out for you. Also check the statute of limitations for breach of contract in your state. The statute of limitations is the legal term for the time limit for bringing a legal case. If the lender is trying to collect after the time limit, you may not have to pay anything. Sean Marshall, NTD News. And next we take a look at public debate surrounding the birth control pill. Conservative influencers, as they've been labeled, and Evie, a women's magazine, are facing media pushback for discussing side effects linked to the pill, which studies have found include depression and even increased risk of suicidal ideation. Earlier today, I spoke with Evie Magazine's founder, Brittany Martinez, for her take on the debate and why a full, robust discussion could afford women more choice. Brittany, thanks for coming on. You and Evie Magazine have been a driving force within the movement to open up discussion about the birth control pill and its potential side effects. Could you tell me a little more about that? Yeah, so we were the first women's magazine to really talk about the side effects of birth control pill. Now influencers and everybody's talking about it, TikTok, but before nobody was questioning it because back then you were a bad feminist if you questioned the birth control pill. But what people don't realize is from the beginning of the birth control pill, women were being experimented on. So how it works is it creates a synthetic form of progesterone. And progesterone is a hormone that your body creates when you're pregnant, so you're not able to have babies. And originally, Pincus, the scientist who developed it under Margaret Sanger, would went to this doctor who was treating women with infertility issues, and he was prescribing them progesterone, which you think would be worse since they have infertility issues. But it ended up, the theory was maybe if they took it, then after they got off it, they would be able to have kids. So. They did that, uh, lots of side effects. They tested on men, men were, their testicles were shrinking, they were becoming feminized. So they ended up testing it illegally in Puerto Rico. And the women they were experimenting on back in the 50s, there wasn't consent or anything. So they thought it was just this great pill from America. And a lot of them had horrible side effects, blood clots, ended up dying. And the pill today is obviously, the dose is not as high as it was back then, but it's still very similar to the original dose. And. In terms of the response to your publications, um, you know, writings about this topic, do you feel that the discussion around the birth control pill is reminiscent in any way of what we saw during COVID? That the discussion is limited yeah. to what's determined to be established medical science? Yeah, and the whole thing is so interesting because like I was saying with the original development of the birth control pill, it was Pincus, this French scientist who did in vitro on animals, and he actually was famous for going to the press and the media and not actually going to established medical journals to uh, publish his work. So Harvard ended up cutting ties with him. But now it's like science from the beginning, you know, this is where it came from, this man who like said one day maybe women would be able to get pregnant without men's help, and now look at today, like that's a possibility. 
Um, so there's a lot <laughs> that women have been experimented on since the beginning. And it is very similar to, of course, the Vax. You can't question anything. You can't talk about side effects. We were the first publication talking about menstrual effects with the vaccine and how that affected women's cycles. And uh, at first we were called conspiracy theorists and then later it was proved you're correct. So most of the things that we were um, talking about later have been proven as correct. And why do you think it's important to keep working to open up this debate around the birth control pill? Because I think everyone needs to know it has side effects. Most of us get prescribed a birth control pill when we're like 15, 16 for anything from irregular periods to acne to any sort of problem. And it's not fair when you trust your doctor and you think that it's what's best for you and then women are struggling later on. And we don't know the long-term effects of infertility with the pill, but we do know all the side effects and same with the vax. It's like women should have the knowledge of what they put in their body before they put in it and that's it. It shouldn't be that big of a conspiracy. Right, and so finally, could you tell us a little bit about EV Magazine and why you started it? Yeah, EV Magazine is a women's publication that we started to celebrate truth and beauty. Uh, we wanted to talk about subjects that no other women's magazine would touch and promote good values and not, you know, a lot of what uh, the legacy women's media companies are promoting today. So. Uh, we just launched our EV 2.0. The best thing to do is to subscribe to us online, and we have a beautiful print edition. So I hope you continue seeing all the cool work we do. Um, and yeah. Great. Thank you so much, Brittany Martinez, founder and editor in chief of EV Magazine. Yeah, thank you for having me. Coming up, a hazing investigation into a major college football program supports a whistleblower's allegation and results in a coach's suspension. Yet plenty of questions remain unanswered. And NASA's Space Shuttle Endeavor is about to embark on a new journey across the California Science Center. After 11 years on display, it will soon stand upright once again. These stories and more here on NTD News. Moving to sports news, a former Wimbledon champion was eliminated today at the All England Club and in college football, a prominent coach was suspended following a hazing investigation. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Northwestern football coach Pat Fitzgerald was given a two-week suspension following a hazing investigation into his program that started back in January. The university's announcement didn't provide any details but said they found a whistleblower's claim was supported, though player accounts varied. In addition, there wasn't sufficient evidence to support that any coaches knew about the alleged hazing. Fitzgerald said he was very disappointed to learn of the hazing allegations. Said the longtime coach, we hold our student athletes and our program to the highest standards. We will continue to work to exceed those standards moving forward. Meanwhile, Fitzgerald's two-week unpaid suspension begins immediately, though preseason practices don't start until August. And in tennis news, former two-time Wimbledon champion Andy Murray felt to fifth-seeded Stefano Tsitsipas in five sets in a match that was started Thursday and ended Friday due to the venue's curfew. Murray, who was champion here in 2013 and again in 2016, actually won more points in the match 
but lost two of the three set tiebreakers. Meanwhile, on the women's side, Americans Madison Keys seeded 25th and fourth seeded Jessica Pagula both advanced with straight sets wins. Elsewhere, top seeded Iga Sviatek is into the fourth round as well with a win over Petra Martic. And finally, in baseball news, the field is set for next week's home run derby. Among the eight participants will be Dodgers outfielder and former MVP Mookie Betts, who already has 23 home runs at the halfway point of the season. Among those joining him will be Mets first baseman Pete Alonso, who's a two-time winner of this competition. The event is scheduled for next Monday night in Seattle on the eve of baseball's All-Star Game. Reporting by Dave Martin and TD News. And next, one historic space shuttle is getting a new home and also a new look in a new display that will showcase its cosmic significance. NTD's Christina Corona has more. As if guided by the cosmos itself, NASA's space shuttle Endeavour embarks on a grand journey, charting to a new domain within the California Science Center where it will continue to inspire stargazers like myself. After over 11 years on display at the California Science Center, Space Shuttle Endeavour will be moved into a vertical launch position for display at the new Samuel Ocean Air and Space Center. The California Science Center said, We are grateful to be at this point in the construction of the new Air and Space Center and thrilled to start Gopher Stack on July 20th to commemorate Space Exploration Day. Gopher Stack is a roughly six-month project that would stack each of the space shuttle components into a 20-story vertical display. It will start with installing the aft skirts. The Endeavour solid rocket motors will then be stacked to form the solid rocket boosters and then move and lift the external tank, ET-94. A large crane will lift the rocket for its final move across Exposition Park, where the orbiter will connect with the rest of the space shuttle stack. Once finished, Endeavour will stand vertically, towering at 200 feet tall. The Air and Space Center building will be completed around the full shuttle stack. The Samuel Ocean Air and Space Center will be built around Endeavour. So if you want to enjoy NASA's Space Shuttle Endeavour, then you will have until December 31st, 2023, until the spacecraft is moved to its new location. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. And another stifling heat wave is expected to hit Southern California and parts of the U.S. next week. So some pet owners may need to take extra precautions to protect their pets from potentially fatal heat stroke. NTD's David Jiang visited a local veterinary hospital for some tips on how to keep your dogs safe from intense temperatures. As the days grow hotter, dog owners should pay careful attention because dogs will keep going even as they are overheating, and that could turn deadly on hot days. Summer, we definitely see an uptick, and this past heat wave uh, definitely brought in a lot of pets, unfortunately. Patients that we see most frequently are the ones with flat faces and short noses. So the little French bulldogs and pugs, English bulldogs, mastiffs, boxers, they're the most common cases that we see. Dogs that are obese, too young or too old, or have preconditions of heart disease can also be at risk. So what are some signs of heat stroke dog owners should watch out for? First thing you're going to see is that these dogs start to just act tired. They have their head down, they're walking more slowly, um, they're lying down frequently and not wanting to get up. Other signs include excessive panting, vomiting, excessive drooling, bloody diarrhea, and fainting. If a dog's temperature reaches above 107 or 108, the heat could damage the dog's organs. 
Dr. McCready shares a personal story about her own dog. I was on a hike on a day that wasn't very hot. It was just 80 degrees, but it was sunny without much breeze. And first she started just slowing down, hanging her head, looking like she was getting tired. And then she lay down in a puddle and we thought that, you know, she was just having fun and we were laughing, but she couldn't get up and she had collapsed because of the heat. Her dog luckily got help and is doing great now. But Dr. McCready reminds pet owners that there is not a good survival rate for actual heat strokes. So prevention is very crucial. So if you have a, um, you know, an air conditioned environment, just keep them in that environment from uh, like 10 o'clock in the morning till late in the evening, like seven or eight in the evening, especially on real hot days. Um, and then also like, you know, give them access to shade, give them access to a wading pool, make sure they've got plenty of water and good ventilation. You can turn fans on. She also reminds people to never leave pets in a car unattended and to know your nearby veterinary hospitals in case of an emergency. Take care of your pets and, and good luck. David Zhang, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.